Hey, good morning, Journey. Ah, oh, look at you. You look great today. Uh, Peter Holmes is my friend. He comes from the southern coast of England. Uh, just moved to Tiki Island outside of Galveston three weeks before Hurricane Ike hit. So, so you know, keep a distance. <laughs> and uh, I've known him for about 30 years. Uh, many years ago when I was planning a church in Iowa, him and his wife, he's from England, but his wife is American. Mary is here, and uh, she's from Iowa. They moved to that little community, and I got to dedicate their, uh, their bo- little boy, Christopher. And so we've kind of journeyed together for 30 years. He's the most difficult man I've ever known. <laughs> but he cares more than anybody I've ever met about the formation of Christ in me. And he carries Christ with him. And uh, so he's going to be sharing with us this morning. So would you welcome Peter Holmes. Good morning. Well, I bring greetings from Christchurch Deal, which is uh, a few miles outside Dover on the Kent coast overlooking the French coast. Uh, where I've been uh, pastoring and part of the leadership team for the last decade. And uh, Derry, I take that as a compliment, that I'm the most difficult man that you've ever known. Um, Actually, what he's saying is that uh, he and I have had a relationship, and it's been like steel against steel for many years. And uh, it's one that I value extremely highly. And although we've been on two continents and there's been a pond between us, we've kept in contact. Uh, I should add, my son that he dedicated in uh, Hinton, Iowa, is now 30 years old. So it gives you an idea of the kind of relationship. I also bring greetings from Tiki Island Chapel in uh, Galveston, Texas, uh, where my wife and I have a second home. And uh, I'm here in the States now for three or four months each year uh, doing uh, teaching and training and uh, writing books and uh, a number of other things. And I thank you for the invitation and the privilege of being here. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, We lay the red carpet out to you this morning. We welcome you in our midst. We welcome you opening our hearts. And we invite you to manifest yourself to us. And we would count it a privilege to meet you. in places we may not have gone before during this next half hour. Amen. In the spring of 1994, in the small central East African country of Rwanda, Over a period of 100 days, 1.2 million people 
were killed. Half a million women were raped and infected with AIDS. And several hundred thousand children scarred for life and maimed. During the 1800s, the king of Rwanda kept peace with his people. And he had one word, no. Whenever there was any kind of jealousy or rivalry. Cain and Abel, one was a herdsman and one was a farmer. And in Rwanda, the herdsmen tended to be richer. They fed their children with milk. And so they grew taller. The farmers working the land were shorter, muscular in stature. And there were a lot more of them. The herdsmen were the Tutsi and the farmers were the Hutu. And under the kings, for thousands of years, these two trades groups lived at peace. Then the colonial powers of Europe stepped into Africa. And in the early 1900s, first the Germans and then the Belgians came into the country and they looked at these unruly savages and decided that they were going to take control. And the way they decided to keep control of the people was to cause embittered anger and jealousy between the farmers and the herdsmen. And it's an appalling shame to be a European and to be in a country like Rwanda where one of the first things I had to say on my first trip a number of years ago was to meet some of the heads of state and say sorry to them for the appalling way that we had divided their country and destroyed their culture. And in 1955, there was the first genocide of just a few tens of thousands. But then in 1994, we have a government that is Hutu, that has spent the previous five years putting together a dossier, a database, of every single Tutsi in the country with the intention of exterminating the entire group. And in fact, just a week or two before he was killed in his aircraft, the Prime Minister of Rwanda stood up and said, the day is coming shortly when my children will turn to me and say, Daddy, what do the Tutsi look like? Because there'd be none left to see. And the systematic annihilation of the herdsmen and the stealing of their cattle and the destroying of their homes 
in all the villages across Rwanda at the rate of 10,000 people per day. It was done mostly with machetes because they didn't have the money for bullets. And the whole country collapsed into genocide. And it was rather tragic because General Delaire, who was in charge of the UN forces in this region, was screaming down the phone every day, looking out at the street and the blood pouring down in the red mud of the roads, calling for troops to come and to stop the slaughter. The UN, the American government, and the European governments all contacted the Hutu government in Kigali and said, is this true? And they said, nah, it's not happening. It's all a pack of lies. It's propaganda. It's intended to cause provocation against us. No. Okay, fine. And the slaughter went on. In fact, General Dallaire, after he had resigned, because he couldn't continue after the genocide, wrote a book, a kind of cathartic experience of what actually happened, and it was one of the first books that told the truth. And in the interview, when they launched the book, one of the journalist turned to him and said, uh, we understand that you're a Catholic and you believed in God. Uh, what happened to your God? And almost in tears, he looked down almost with a sense of shame. And then looked up and he said, yes, I used to believe in God, but I definitely believe in God now. My Faith in God is unquestioned because I've met his enemy. And the tragedy for every one of us today is that it's now 14 years since that happened. And the problems are getting worse. The World Health Organization are beginning to find a range of diseases appearing in that part of Central East Africa in what's called the Great Lakes region. And they're finding a range of illnesses that have never been known in these parts of Africa before. Heart disease, cancers, many of them stress-driven. What is described as psychophysiological disorder. Disorder that initially begins to birth itself in our bodies emotionally and not because of disease. And people said after the genocide, well, just give us a few years, we'll be fine, we'll sort this out, we'll get over this. But there is now a whole class of people in this country who actually are getting sicker and sicker. And where they're able to, they're having children, and those children are showing many of the similar signs of the stress, the trauma, what's described as the post-traumatic stress. 
In our ministry, we have uh, been working for many, many years with damaged people and people that have lost their way and particularly with people that have not found what they're looking for in Christ. They believe in God, they love the Lord, but they're not there. They haven't found it yet. And one such woman turns up at one of our workshops, had been a missionary in Africa for many years, and she came along because as her husband died, he dumped on her some appalling things about his past. And she came along because she needed to find a way of letting it go. But from the first workshop, she kept saying to us, Peter, you've got to take your ministry to Rwanda. You've got to go to Rwanda. And so I said, yes, okay, Mary, that's fine. And this went on for about 18 months, and then eventually, uh, after a workshop, she just looked at me. I said, okay, I'll go. When do we leave? And she took me there um, with Susan Williams, my colleague, and we uh, spent two weeks... And we met lots of people. In my ministry, um, I know that I don't have any answers. But I know that the individual in Christ does have the answers. And I just sat down with Randy's people and started asking them what they wanted from us, how we could support them. And the message came through very, very clearly. Psalm 116. The cords of death have entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow, and I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me! This man used a phrase then. He was actually a pastor working in prisons. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he held my hand. And he said, Peter, I'm looking for Jesus. I've lost Jesus since the genocide. Looking for Jesus. And we worked with a lot of people in those early days, just listening to them and listening to their stories. a six-year-old who was found alive under the dead bodies of her brothers and sisters and couldn't speak because of the trauma of what she had seen. The elderly man who's had his hands cut off so he will not work the fields anymore 
and they left him alive with the children and killed everyone else in the village. I'm looking for Jesus. Where was God when this happened? Where was he? Why did he allow this to happen? And many of these people were in that kind of a rage, in that kind of a pain. And they didn't have an answer. And I just sat and I wept and I wept. And I was with a young girl with one of our team, Yvonne Cooper, and we were sitting there on the patio of the guest house. And this child was dumb, couldn't speak any English, she only had Kinyawanda, which is the local language. And so we asked her to start writing out what happened. And as she began to write it out and her adopted mother translated, I turned round to the girl and said, Jesus was there. And if a person's in profound trauma or carrying huge rage or anger or revenge, they will never be able to find Christ in these dark places. But at some point, if they decide they want the answer and not just to continue carrying the problem, then they can find Christ in these darkest places. And what we've done is we've put a program together. Um, one of my areas of skill is in therapeutic community, and that's a huge movement in Europe. And the whole movement exists without any trained therapists. And what we do is we teach people how to help one another in small support groups to meet Jesus in their pain. And I struggled with this child and I was saying to her, that the Lord wanted to meet her in that darkest time of her life and needed her to give him her tears. And as she did, over a period of two or three sessions, engaging the emotion, beginning to let it flood her, and by giving it to Christ, her voice returned and she began talking. 
very simple stuff, therapeutically speaking, but incredibly powerful as an idea. And the message I found I was carrying for Rwanda was to ask people whether they were willing to go back to the darkest moments of their life, to the places they have run scared from for years, and in some cases decades, and to go back there because at that place, Jesus is waiting for them to let him be their redeemer. And I have one woman who had been raped a number of times by an uncle in the village during the genocide. And after we'd been working with her for two or three weeks, she stood up in church on the Sunday morning. And with tears in her eyes, hot stuff for her still. She imagined herself back there in the village hut and the place of greatest shame and the place of greatest defeat had now become the place where she met Jesus. It had been redeemed in her life. So what I'm saying is that uh, we don't have the answer in ourselves, but we have it in Christ. And the challenge for every one of us is to actually learn to thank the Lord for what we have been given from him if we ever bother to claim it. So I was given Mission Impossible today because Derry and uh, Brian wanted me to talk about Rwanda and they said I'll drop a few thankful things in as well because it's Thanksgiving that weekend. <laughs> hey, excuse me, guys. <laughs> well, none of us thank anyone for anything easily and often when we do we're embarrassed and actually we always seem to put conditions on it well I'm really grateful God that I'm not like the rest of those poor sinners or I'm really grateful God because actually um, yeah I'm just real grateful I'm not like them Um, but actually When we talk about thankfulness and being thankful, we have to learn to celebrate Christ in the world. Christ, the giver of wholeness. Christ, the healer of people. Jehovah Rapha, the one who sews you back together like a piece of torn, damaged cloth. I don't think there's any one of you that would thank God 
for the grass that's growing up in the cracks in your driveway. And you zap it with, what do you use over here? Roundup, there we go, that's the stuff. <laughs> You're out of here, bang! But actually, the way God has created the natural world, it has incredible power to heal. Look at the tree. The branch falls to the ground. If you go back there two or three months later, you'll watch the bark that's grown over the open wound and it's healed itself. During the Second World War, they stopped fishing in the North Atlantic, in the Icelandic waters. And the cod population in 1939 was almost on extinction. You couldn't get a cod and chips in England anymore. By 1946, when they started fishing again, because the Germans kept sinking their fishing boats, so they figured it wasn't really a good idea, when they started fishing again, there were enormous stocks, and they had more cod than they knew what to do with, and they had to cut back on their fishing routines because there was too much fish in the ocean. Do you get it? Or look at the piece of wild ground. In England, we have to leave 10% of our land fallow to grow wild for wildlife. And you can walk around fields anywhere in Europe now and you'll find the beauty of the meadow being recovered and the wild flowers and the native grasses and the beauty of how God intended it to look. But when you look at the animal kingdom, you need to be thankful as well. One of the most amazing things about animals is that they're designed to survive if you let them. The lion tangles with an antelope and gets wounded and it crawls over under the shadow of the tree and it rests and it licks its wound and cleans it. And it rests his body while it heals it. And when it feels it's healed, it gets up and it lives again. And our bodies are the same. We are designed to heal and become whole. The only difficulty is that we as human beings do not live by the rules that God set down for us, so we actually aren't willing to become whole on his terms. We've rebelled. The natural world continues to live by the incredible cycles of the seasons. You call it Thanksgiving, we call it Harvest Festival. The animal kingdom exists and proliferates wherever it is allowed to. 
because it's designed that way by God. Christ in the natural world, he was the agent of creation. He made it that way. In the animal kingdom, he created it. He made it that way. In us, he created us. He has made us that way to become whole. When Bonhoeffer was in prison in Germany at the end of the Second World War, he had gone back there from England, got arrested, and was about to be killed. And this is a young man who in the 1910s, the 1920s, sat at a table in Berlin with his family and his father was a brilliant psychologist, professor of psychology at Berlin University. And Bonhoeffer grew up listening to some of the most amazing men, Freud and many, many others, discussing these amazing discoveries in psychology of how we can heal each other. And Bonhoeffer knows he's going to die soon. And he's thinking about this problem. And he believes there is a key in this issue that the church has completely missed and needs to grasp if it's to survive. And he writes in his journal what is now so obvious but wasn't in 1945. I have come to the conclusion, he writes, that wherever there is healing and wherever there is the giving of wholeness, we see Christ whether he is named or not. He was saying to the church, we don't have to get them converted. We have to do what Jesus did and heal them unconditionally. Let them go and keep an open door in case they want to come back and find out the person who healed them. Bonhoeffer was shot a couple of weeks later. And one of the last things that Hitler did before he committed suicide in his bunker was he turned around to his aide-de-corps and he said, have they killed Bonhoeffer yet? Sir! Good. Then he went off and killed himself. And one of the tragedies of our lives today is that we won't let God be Redeemer. We won't let him into the areas of our lives where he can prove that he is God. We won't let him go there. 
either because we're so angry and hurt that he didn't do anything about it in the first place, or we're actually more comfortable with our baggage than we are with the promise of wholeness. So in Rwanda, we're putting together a $4 million pilot program to begin teaching Rwandese to help one another. It's uh, described in uh, Europe as an expert by experience program. And it's been very, very successful in many parts of the world. But I'd like to leave that question with you. Where's Jesus? He's probably waiting at the one place in your life that you don't want to go. You'd like to meet him in the meadow, but you don't want to meet him in the darkness because you're never going back there. Or there may be areas that you actually have no intentions of letting God into. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful. You are Redeemer. And we'd like to lay before you those areas where we've lost hope. Maybe our job. Maybe our children. Our failed education. our damaged relationships. Our lack of love. Maybe the verbal abuse. The sexual abuse. the emotional abuse. The past church and the spiritual abuse. or even the physical abuse. Lord, we are thankful that you want to meet us there and redeem it with us.
and we ask for the courage and a friend to hold our hands as we go there and meet you, our Redeemer. In the name of Christ. Amen.